Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. When I say comfort, do you picture an upright cruiser with a gel saddle cover, or do you think about a valuable way to improve your performance? It was just a few episodes ago, episode 276 to be exact, that we discussed the balance of aerodynamics and power for cycling performance. During that episode, we alluded to a third factor to improve your performance, maximizing comfort. And today, we have an episode dedicated to the topic. We have two experts, Dr. Andy Pruitt, the inventor of the modern medical bike fit, and Larry Meyer, owner of Build Physical Therapy and Performance Center in Louisville, Colorado. We'll address how positioning and touch points contribute to making you faster, regardless of your age, ability, or discipline. Often, this means finding the root cause of discomfort and not using band-aid fixes like thicker handlebar tape. We'll round out our conversation by hearing from fitter Glenn Swan and pro rider Alex Howes, who races mountain, road, and gravel at the highest level. So, understand that comfort is king, and let's make you fast. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Amatra is a powerful tool used to focus your mind on a particular goal and create calm during challenging situations. Our mantra, transformation begins where comfort ends. This mantra isn't meant to be intimidating. On the contrary, it should be invigorating. For many people, everyday life is filled with convenience, monotony, and a lack of time spent in nature. Alter Exploration facilitates the exact opposite. Challenging, invigorating, life-altering experiences in the natural world. Alter's journeys aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of you and the destination. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Life. Altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Well, welcome everyone. We got a great crew here to help us with this topic today. This is one, I just want to give a little bit of a backstory here. So we did an episode not all that long ago that we put up in July. This was episode 276, I would like to say, on aerodynamics. So we were talking about, is power more important than aerodynamics? And we were talking about all the different ways to position on a bike to make you as fast as possible. And rightfully so, Dr. Pruitt here listened to the episode and reached out to me and said, you never once said the word comfort and chastised me for that. And it's an appropriate chastisement because ironically, at the same time, so I went and did the triple bypass. And the triple bypass is this, it took me a little over eight hours to complete this event. The weekend before I went out for a four hour bike ride and two and a half hours in, I was ready to rip my shoes off. My feet were in such pain. What? So short version, Andy actually helped me with this. I had to switch my pedals and I used to have a longer spindle and the new pedals have a shorter spindle and that little difference made it incredibly uncomfortable for me. So I went to the triple bypass on this great, nicely cleaned road bike, ready for the event, but with these giant mountain bike pedals in my mountain bike shoes, because I knew that was the only way I was going to survive the event. I mean, because of all the walking that you were going to do up the hills. 
Yes, that too. <laughs> so comfort. We don't talk about it probably enough. It is really important. And I'm going to throw this over to our guests, but I think the two of you could probably make an argument that it's not a performance versus comfort thing that you can actually have both. And so, Dr. Pruitt, I'll throw that to you first. They go hand in hand. If you're not comfortable, you're not going to perform. If you do perform, you're not going to perform very long. So comfort and performance, I think, are, are hand in hand. If I think about my career as a medical bike fitter, rarely did they come purely for a performance. They came because something was keeping them from performing to their perceived abilities, right? Whether it was hand pain, foot pain, saddle pain, back pain, whatever that was, and they wanted that solved so they could move on and perform better. So I think they go hand in hand. Any thoughts on this? Well, it's one of those variables you really can't quantify, right? So you... As a physical therapist, I sit in a room with patients and, and I'll say, what hurts? And they'll tell me, this hurts right here. Uh, so they're not comfortable. And they'll explain the, the lineage of their, of their problem. And they'll say, you know, my comfort level got worse or it got better or the same thing. Or it's been uh, acting the same way. And so when it comes to uh, doing a, a medical bike fit or a performance bike fit, uh, I think we're all striving for, Andy, you'll probably agree with me, we're, we're striving for that smile. So... What you just said was a medical bike fit or a performance bike fit. Sure. That's on your menu of services. Yep, it is. Are they different? Somewhat. Tell me. So every cyclist has needs. They have a normal need, right? You talk to them about it. You have their subjective information. You talk about what do you do? What's your problems? What's, uh, what do you want to get better at? And so they have needs. So sometimes the rider is willing to eke out of that tolerance zone and uh, sacrifice a little comfort to be a little bit faster or a little bit more powerful. Uh, so it is a trade-off. So, but most of the clients, when it comes to a medical bike fit, they're looking for that smile. They're looking for finally going, that's it. That's it. I, I see something different. I feel something different. I would propose to you that the guy who's willing to suck it up for that short period of time is not going to continue to suck it up for his entire cycling Absolutely, career, right? right. So you get... He gets, I'm going to make this up, left SI pain climbing Chapman. So it's a gravel climb here in town for the other listeners who don't know this. So it's a, it's a five-mile gravel climb, persistent up the backside of Flagstaff. So if you get left SI pain climbing that, but you don't get it any other time, you may not pursue a solution for it. Sure. Although probably should, Right? I mean, because you don't know in his career when he's going to encounter another climb similar to that and he's going to get his SI pain back again. So I, anyway, I, I think that the name on the bill, performance bike fit versus medical bike fit, I did the same thing, as you know. We, we, yeah. we grouped together BCSM. So I think the end result is going to be the same regardless of what I called it at the beginning. Let's hear our first clip from Glenn Swan and how a stable position is the core of both performance and comfort. To me, it was always most important to have a very stable position on the bike. Where the seat is relative to the pedals makes a huge difference in the amount of weight you have on your hands and thus how much you can use of your upper body and the amount of power that you can put in. So it was always very important to me to have a position on the bike where I wasn't having to prop myself up where I was stable. If your knees are in front of your pedal axles, 
then as you push down on the pedal, the resultant force that's acting on your body tends to push you forward. Triathletes get away with this or time trialists get away with being very far forward because they're resting on their skeletons. But to a road racer, if you are too far forward and you're having to hold yourself back, then you feel like you're doing push-ups all day long and that doesn't help your performance at all. So I know you have a story that you are itching to tell about this. Oh, there was a gentleman whose first name was Marcus. I'll leave it at that. He was a pro tour rider for Saxo Bank. And his job was to sit at the front of the group. So here we are talking about performance, right? Here we are back at the yep. pro tour again, instead of at the triple bypass. We're back at the pro tour. And his job was to sit at the front of the, of the classics. So he'd be at the front of Paris Bay for the first two-thirds of the race, his, his description, ripping people's legs off. And then he would drop out of the race, and he would actually urinate blood mm-hmm. for days, sometimes weeks, after Perry Roubaix. And everybody thought it was okay. He was sexually active. He said, I got three kids. It's not a, it must not be a problem, right? But the bottom line was, when we looked at his position, he was in no way in the most efficient position he could be in. But he was already at that level. He's already at mm-hmm. that pro tour level, able to sit at the front of Perry Roubaix. The discovery was that his saddle was way too narrow. I mean, he was having to contract his pelvic floor muscles and his glutes and retrovert or tip his pelvis back so that he didn't have to sit right on his perineum. Obviously, the road was rough enough that his perineum was taking a beating and therefore causing the, the blood in his urine, urine for days. But once we got this guy on a saddle that was wide enough for his pelvis, we had to lengthen his stem by three centimeters. We ultimately improved the way he looked on his bike, made him significantly more comfortable, and he could do his job better. Right. And that stem lengthening is coming because with the lack of pain, because he now has a saddle that's appropriately supporting his pelvis, he was actually able, right, to rotate forward, which is rotate forward at the hip, which is going to engage muscles better. It's also going to increase stability within the core. But ultimately, that's where that increased stem length is coming from, not just stretching the rider out. That's the new appropriate reach for this person because they're that much further forward with the comfortable saddle and position. Absolutely. He was... Unable, unable. Uh, I got eight years of college. Um, <laughs> he was unable to fire his glutes in his original position because he was holding them in a contracted position to avoid banging up his crotch. So once we allowed him to support his pelvis, relax those muscles, come into a more uh, appropriate pelvic position, he now had a whole new muscle group to use yeah. that he didn't have before. I coined this uh, phrase of movement strategies, right? These decisions that people make based off of either a you know, comfort based off an injury, based off a, a position of the bike, based off their saddle height, the width of their saddle. These are strategies that people are subconsciously or consciously making. So it's so important to guide them and educate them. And Andy, you are brilliant at just knowing the cyclists. And that's the thing that I learned from you, which is just really talk to them. So you have to understand what their motivation is because that contributes to that movement strategy choice. You have to understand what their pain tolerance is. You have to understand all these different variables about why they're making these choices. But if you can make a tiny little change, a few degrees in their saddle, then all of a sudden they're subconsciously making a choice and they don't even know where it came from. So I don't want to hog up this whole conversation between Larry and I, but my belief was and is 
that the bike should look like the rider. A rider who makes themselves look like a malfit bike is going to be a, a defeated athlete. So the bike needs to look like them. So the injured athlete seeking either performance or comfort would come see us at BCSM or wherever, we, we pro tour camps, whatever. And I believe that we should make the bike look like them that day. Larry and his cohorts would say to me, no, they need hamstring length, they need glute strength, they need these other things. And I said, great, we'll change the bike fit once you accomplish that, right? Sure. So some athletes are motivated to just get the bike fit and go on about their business. Others are get the bike fit, then do the work, right? and then refit the bike as appropriate once the work's done. Right. You know, when it comes to, you know, the way that we do it as physical therapists and our medical and performance bike fits, our goal through that exam, which spawned off of me working at BCSM, we've taken it to the next level and incorporate a lot of neuro, a lot of motor skills, neuromuscular programming, just to understand what that problem set looks like at the very end of that exam. You, you know, Andy, you walk in and put that rider on the bike, you know exactly what they're going to be looking like. You can tell which way their knees are going to go and, and how they're going to be positioned on, on that bike. So it's very important for us as PTs to understand these different components of movement strategies so that uh, we can best understand their needs when they're riding. Something I want to address before we get too deep into this conversation is that word comfort, right? I think that comfort oftentimes has a negative connotation associated with it. Comfort is uh, steer tube extensions, it's gel pads on your seat, yeah. uh, it's, it's funky looking saddles that don't look like a bike saddle. That's what people think when they think comfort. But this is not a value judgment, right? It's not about having a slammed stem, even though those might be in the rules, right? Thou shalt not have more than one spacer under your stem, I'm sure <laughs> is written in there. It has nothing to do with any of that. And Andy, as you said, the bike has to reflect the rider. And here's the thing, if you don't like what your bike looks like, then maybe you should address yourself and your limitations so that you can ultimately get to a place maybe that you want to be. But hey, if your front end is in that position, if your saddle is in that position, if your shoes and your cleats are in that position, it's because that's what they need in that moment. There's the whole family of bikes called comfort bikes. Irritates the crap out of me. That's mm -hmm. assuming all the others are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So that, yeah, you're just, so right. That is a great point. <laughs> I got to take it a step further. There are things that people think are comfortable that if you're riding for 30 minutes, yeah, like the gel pads, the, the argument I always make to people is go get a beanbag chair, sink into the beanbag chair. That feels great. Try sitting at that beanbag chair for eight hours a day at your desk and you discover very quickly you really hate yeah, it. It's the need, right? You're looking at what that person's need is. Yep. I mean, I, I'm an anti-gel guy. Yep. Gel wants to return to its normal shape. So you do the thumb test at the bike shop. You go, oh, wow, that feels good. That's going to be great. And when you press into it, yes, it's soft. It always wants to return to its original shape. So gel is always pushing back. You're absolutely correct, back. yes. ASICs would like to have a word with you. <laughs> so we're going to shift here and talk about probably the most important area of comfort, which is the saddle or where you sit on the bike. And I would love for the two of you to kind of take it from here and say, how do you build comfort into where you sit on the bike? Well, let me first say that the saddle is the center of the fit universe. 
And if you, one of our listeners is at Larry's facility or at a retail shop in the middle of a fit, and for some reason the saddle gets changed, you start over. It changes everything. It changes your pelvic alignment. It changes your saddle height. It changes your reach to the handlebars. So just if, if people listen to this, turn this off. They're driving up in the mountains. They turn this off after this. They, it's been worthwhile, right? The saddle is the center of the fit universe. And in any, any fit that you're paying for somewhere or not paying for, and they change the saddle in the middle of that fit, you really have to stop. And rethink everything, satellite, saddle foraf, all of those things, reach. So the, the saddle is the key to everything. How do you find the right saddle? I did a presentation at Larry's facility a week or so ago, and that, that how do we find the right saddle? It came up, and I said, well, there are devices out there that help start a conversation. So depending on your torso angle on the bike really determines what part of the pelvis you're actually going to sit on. The comfort bike, the town bike, you're probably sitting more on your ischial tuberosities, the actual sit bones, and they can easily be measured, the width of them. For more aggressive or more performance-related bikes, we're going to be a little bit farther forward on the pubic rami. We're going to roll. If you look at a pelvis, it looks like a rocking chair, and we're going to rock the chair a little bit forward on the on the rails or the rocker aspects of the chair. We can't measure those. It's a very personal area. So we can't measure those in a, in a retail or even a physical therapy store. So physical therapy shop. So the conversation needs to start with ischial tuberosity. Width is a conversation starter. Here's what these measure that might indicate that we can start to look at this shape and size of saddle for you. But it is a, it is a definite work in progress. I encourage people to find a fit facility that has a, a saddle trial program, and most of them do, where you can use it for 30 days or whatever, X number of miles, X number of rides, and you can churn through these until you can find one that, that works for you. Yes, I have several patents. Yes, they were all through Specialized. But in all honesty, the industry has been elevated to such a place now that, that there are many brands that do quite well and mimicking the work that's been done scientifically prior. So I don't think it necessarily has to have a, a big white S on it, but there's going to be a saddle out there for somebody. There's yeah. going to be one out there for you, but you have to look. Well, it starts with the experts, the, you know, like yourself, where you've seen thousands of people on saddles and you give good recommendations, but there's going to be those individuals that come back a week later and say, I hate it. Yep. I hate it. It just didn't work. And so... The saddle is so unique to all different uh, purposes, right? So it, um, the flare in the back, the, the falling walls on the side, they're, they're meant for control. They're meant for positioning. Again, going back to the need of the cyclist. What kind of race are you doing? What kind of recreational sport are you doing? When you were talking, I had a story that popped in my head about um, a 16-year-old junior that was on our team. And uh, he made a choice to move his saddle up in the air because he felt that it would be more appropriate, more comfortable. So he moved it up five centimeters. <laughs> oh. And so his dad came up to me in practice and said, um, I won't say his name, is, uh, he's got some back pain. And it's kind of going down his rear. And, uh, and I, uh, I said, okay, well, let's take a look. I actually didn't see the bike that he was riding, training on. So he came in for a bike fit and he had five centimeters higher. And I said, what is going on here? And he said, well, I just moved it up. I thought it'd be appropriate to move it up and it would give me something different. He felt that it was going to make a change. Andy knows what happened. He flared up his hamstrings. He flared up his sciatic nerves on both sides. Had to take him off the bike for a month. 
because he was going downhill. He had flared up everything in his lower extremities. His, his sciatic nerves were just zinging every single time he made a pedal stroke. So he made the choice to be comfortable, but he had no clue. And so does this happen all the time? It does. So um, when it comes back to that word, comfort, comfort, right? What are, we, what are we looking for when we come to that word comfortable? I tend to go towards the tolerant zone, right? Where we're evenly distributing that stress throughout um, being on that bike, whether it's racing or just having a good time on a bike. So where we are in a tolerant zone, where we can tolerate riding, be a machine for a period of time that allows us to do what we want to do. So that, that brings up a really good point. So I'm assuming this young man had the correct saddle. Which brings me to one of my one of my favorite sayings is the the right saddle in the wrong place is as bad as the wrong saddle. There you go. So let's talk about men and women differences, right? I mean, our undercarriages are similar but different, right? But where we want to bear weight is really on skeletal tissue for the most part. So numbness of any kind, male or female, should not be tolerated. Uh, urinary issues should not be tolerated. These are things that can be eliminated with the right saddle choice right. and the right saddle position. Talk. They should not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form. When I was a young rider, if you were numb for the last hour of a long ride, nah, yeah, okay, that's we're going to tolerate that. That's okay. That's, that's part of doing business, right? But it's not the case anymore. Saddles mm -hmm. and fit have improved to the point where you should not tolerate numbness, tingling, urinary discomfort. I uh, should not tolerate sexual dysfunction, male or female, mm -hmm. uh, that's associated with cycling. If you were to interview a urologist who's my age and he's 70s and ask them point blank, is there a connection between cycling and erectile dysfunction? He's going to say yes, because that's what he was brought up to understand. Uh, if you ask a 40-year-old uh, urologist, is there a connection between erectile dysfunction and cycling? He's going to say no, because the, the saddle industry has improved so much that we've almost totally eradicated erectile dysfunction and its association with cycling as long as the saddle choice is correct and the position is correct. Mm -hmm. Let's hear again for Glenn Swan and his thoughts on the saddle. Once again, it comes back to being in the right position relative to the pedals so that you tend to stay on, I'll call it the more comfortable, the broader part of the saddle. If a person thinks, oh, the nose of the saddle is going to be uncomfortable, I think I'll tilt it down so it doesn't get me, you tend to slide onto the nose and then have to push yourself back. So that can be a little counterintuitive, keeping the saddle far enough back, keeping the nose of the saddle level or even a bit up. In my case, people look at the, the saddle on my bike and think, oh, my goodness, the nose is pointed up quite a bit above the horizontal, that's got to be uncomfortable. But what it does for me is it means if I were to try to slide forward, I would have to slide uphill. So I stay back on the more comfortable part of the saddle. So it's not just the shape or the technology built into a saddle. Where the saddle is, is at least as important as what the saddle is. So the things you've brought up now are for comfort on the saddle, you need the right saddle, and it's a more modern saddle. It needs to be in the right position. Don't go excessive with the gels. I don't think there's anybody here that's saying that they want the gels. No. What else? What else should you be looking for? Shape. So the shapes vary. I think the, the wide flare in the back, uh, if you're quite arrow, gives us something to push against. 
but it also impinges hamstrings. So that it's really, that's why I think trial and error is so important. Even though the saddle may measure and on the box say it's a 143 measurement, the shape is going to be so critical into where that saddle fits underneath that athlete. So shape is key. Cutouts, I think, to relieve pressure in the perineum, that cutout has to be in the right place, whether you're a male or a female. Some of my work has disproved the fact that we really want a big cutout for females. This is not the place for that presentation, but I think women should be really careful about choosing a saddle that that supports their, their genitalia without putting undue pressure on it. And men probably do better with cutouts than women do. Again, there's so much overlap that I've suggested that they don't call men's and women's saddles anymore. I think they just need to be saddles. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the saddle that I hold the patent on was designed for women, 40% of all those sales now are men. Mm-hmm. So it's all about shape and padding or lack thereof. Even rails, even the rail choice plays it away and the shell of the saddle. So the more expensive saddles are going to have carbon rails and carbon shells. Mm-hmm very little flex and very little hammocking in those. So if you're looking for a saddle for comfort and you're not so concerned about the number of grams it weighs, then go with alloy rails and a plastic shell because you'll actually get some flex and suspension in that plastic shell. Mm -hmm. Now, will it last forever? No, it's like a coat hanger. The more flex a shell has, the more apt it's going to break over time. The saddle should not be expected to last forever. That's always a common question. How long should my saddle last? Oh, more and more I see these saddles failing. More and more. It's one of the first things I look at is just kind of breeze over the top of that saddle and just yep. kind of you know, your eyeballs since looking at hundreds of bikes in a bike lab. You want to make sure that saddle's surviving just as much as you are. So, the, you know, if you have asymmetries in your body, you have a previous ankle sprain or hip injury or fracture, previous fracture, shoulder injury, odds are you're loading that saddle, you know, if it's 5% over the course of hours and minutes of Throughout the year, you're beaten down the saddle on one side. For what it's worth, Larry was glancing at me with every one of those that he just said, <laughs> just so everybody knows because you can't see it. But that's a great segue, I think, because let's take a crooked saddle, one that the shell is broken mm-hmm. or a rail is bent. Many times. So, and they come in to you with hand, knee, or back pain. And the novice fitter is going to try to solve that with a glove or brake hood change Right. That sat not sitting squarely on the saddle, suddenly they have turned ever so slightly on their bike, and it's going to overpressurize one hand over the other. It's going to overpressurize one knee over the other mm-hmm. because the saddle rail is bent. Yeah. I have this test where I have a stool in my bike lab, and so I'll, I'll just be talking to them. And I'll say, and they'll say, well, what's the problem with the rail being bent? You know, and I'm like, it's, you know, two degrees. It's not a ton, but so I'm going to sit on this stool and I'm going to put one butt cheek on the stool, and I'm going to have the other one f- kind of just floating them in the air. What side of my back is doing all the work? And they go, oh. And they'll get it because you're holding up your body for two, three, four, five hours. It's a big, big deal. And you've got to make sure that uh, the orientation of that saddle is meeting your needs and making sure that it's not just changing over time. So, the saddle is the middle of the fit universe. It is the middle. How about of, that? Andy, I'm going to agree Which with you. is what, what you told me with the outline. <laughs> this first. Look, I, I was going to share that, you know, I use a plastic shelf for my saddle. And I rarely win a season without cracking it. Mm-hmm. And I have been really fortunate to never really have any serious knee problems, anything like that. We can talk about my back problem another time. <laughs> but I can tell you 
some of the only times I've started to experience knee pain on the bike was when the saddle was cracked and I didn't pick up on it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately you're fundamentally changing the shape of that saddle. Mm-hmm. It's no longer the saddle that you bought. And that shape is hugely important because even let's say, you know, I know that I'm a 143 mm-hmm. in a specialized saddle. Great. Which specialized saddle yeah. because the different shapes mean that you sit differently on them and you can't say oh well uh roman evo is that am i dating myself is that still a current saddle mm-hmm. there you it go is. roman evo i'm a 143 i'm not i'm i'm a card carrying member of the big ass club for what it's <laughs> worth but if you fit well on a roman evo and then you try to move to a power you might not be at that exact same 143 because Again, the shape has changed. Your sitting position has even changed on it. All of these details matter, and we can't be overlooking them. So let's not offend all those people out there riding 155 or 168 saddles. They're not part of the big-ass club. They're part of the wide pelvis club. Okay, so that is it. <laughs> but but the, the card that I was handed did not say the wide pelvis club, Andy. It said the big-ass club. <laughs> you were one of the first. I was one of the initial. Yeah, we yes, ribbed you, were... ribbed you quite a bit. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I've got one more question here, and I'm actually going to throw this to Rob because there is one other important aspect of comfort where you sit, which is the chamois. Butt pads. Uh, I know. If people don't know, in a previous life prior to being here on the uh, Fast Talk podcast, yeah, I made I made chamois. Uh, I won't necessarily talk about them because I don't want any advertisements or whatever, but chamois are hugely important. I'll even say that sometimes having no chamois can also be a good thing as well. And again, this goes back to the rider and what the rider needs. But a lot of chamois do have some great engineering that goes into them. And the hallmarks of good chamois, Trevor, in my opinion, are chamois that closely mimic the contours of your body. We don't really want a diaper, let's be honest. We don't just want a big bulbous pad between your legs. One, it's uncomfortable walking around, but two, ultimately they end up putting pressure in all the wrong places, just like having that big gel pad on top of your saddle. And so anatomically designed chamois are are really important. But I also think that, you know, again, this is very much about personal preference because I do believe that the position that you're in, even the bike that you're riding, makes some chamois more or less appropriate based on where you're putting pressure. Mm -hmm. I do not subscribe to duration of ride. Some people, some companies will make chamois and say, this is our best chamois for the longest ride possible. Like, no, man, that's a terrible way to go out and begin categorizing the chamois that you have. The foam that most chamois have, in all honesty, packs out to nothing, to a millimeter, right? You feel it in the store. It's this big, beautiful, plush, eight millimeters, 10 millimeters thick. The moment you put your body weight on there, let's be honest, that baby is shrinking down to one millimeter. And when I was designing chamois, I would liken that to, it's like not having enough air in your mountain bike suspension, right? As soon as you sit on it, you're bottoming that suspension out. How is that suspension doing anything for you, mm-hmm. right? And so this is where chamois foam density ultimately is a relatively important thing. It's not as easy to test as it is with saddles because saddles don't necessarily touch intimate areas. Saddles have programs, but people do need to find chamois that work for them. You know, 
previous company I worked for was Pearl Izumi. Pearl Izumi worked really well for me in some regards. And in all honesty, it didn't work well for me in other regards. But those same features that I didn't like, other people raved about. Yeah. Am I wrong? Are they wrong? No, neither of us are wrong. So you had a certain need that you needed to fulfill. Yep. And you made choices question. on it, right? So Absolutely, without question. Who, who hasn't gotten a new kit and just been like, ah, oh, this doesn't work? The too slippery kit or the too slippery shorts or the mm -hmm. sticky shorts that makes everything irritable. That is a big, big piece of the puzzle when it comes to making a choice of how you orient yourself on that bike. So I should I need to adapt my little saying then. The saddle and chamois choice mm -hmm. are the center of the fit universe because that that chamois absolutely changes it. Yep. So I thoroughly agree that you have to seek out and find the chamois shape density, brand that works for you. Yep. Yeah. Be careful because they do change sometimes. They, they didn't change the name of that model, but they did change the chamois pad. And for what it's worth, keep in mind that even updated shorts that have the same chamois in them, try as we may, that chamois might not be positioned in exactly the same spot yep. as it was in the model previous. The chamois is exactly the same. And just as we have sizing issues on saddles, I encourage everyone Put your hand between your saddle and your shorts and feel where your bony structure is in comparison to where your chamois butt pad is. Because oftentimes if, if a chamois is too far back in the shorts or it's designed too narrow, you will be sitting on the edge of that. One, you're now not getting the protection from the chamois, but you are getting increased centerline pressure because all that foam is now bunched up in the middle yeah. and you're not actually actively sitting on it. Yeah, on a seam. We're all different. Yep. Each company is trying to find what they think is perfect. Bell-shaped right? curve. Exactly. Nike running shoes fit my feet really well. Great. Is Nike the best shoe company? Definitely not. What, what Maybe New Balance <laughs> is better for you. Maybe Adidas. And it's that same thing with... Hey, when I was designing chamois, I tried to design around the cohort that I was going after. I'm not saying they're universally the best, right? And so, again, this goes back to what works for you as an individual. Yeah. There is an important practical consideration here, but particularly like when you talk about pro athletes, they have a sponsor. You're stuck in whatever that, mm -hmm. that clothing company's kits are. But a lot of people are members of clubs where the clubs make a deal with a clothing company and, and order the clothing. Be a little careful about that. If you're ordering ahead, you know, go ahead and order as many jerseys as you want. But I highly recommend yeah. try the particular chamois model. Give it a couple rides before you go invest in four or five of them. And I think of a, I was on a team where we had this new clothing company sponsor the team. And I was always the guy saying, you know, put me in a burlap sack. I could care less. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they did. Uh -huh. This chamois was awful. I was, I'll spare you the details. I was finding blood in the chamois uh -huh. after I was riding. That's how bad it was. That's a detail. And literally <laughs> guys on the team, what they, they were doing because, you know, you got to honor the sponsor. <laughs> Just start talking. <laughs> they were, they were literally taking the chamois out of the team shorts, Jeez. buying shorts that they could tolerate mm -hmm. and just wearing the team shorts over top of it. Yeah. Amateur athletes have it the worst, right? Pro athletes, we used to custom make pretty much all the clothing for the pros. So, hey, we could, we could put a different chamois in or, or change the position. So going back to uh, the bench saddle, when you, you find that bench saddle rail and there's, I have kind of like a threshold of 1.5 degrees bent. If it's more than that, then you're going to probably have some issues. 
Um, but you really have to take a look at, you know, how much they're riding and, and what are their comfort level, what are they feeling. But just moving down to the feet, um, you can have someone that presents um, out of their shoes, standing in your examination room, and they're, they've got flat feet or they pronate consistently. And then you take note of it. You look at their feet, you look at their ankles, and you see some stuff, and then you get them on the bike. And uh, lo and behold, they present as supernators on the bike. And you, so you think, What's, what am I seeing here? What's going on? You're like, why are they making that choice? There's no reason for them to make that choice. And then you look down at the shoes and that these 10-year-old shoes, and you, and you think, oh, my. And then you look at uh, the pedals and these 10-year-old pedals, and you start asking them, when's the last time you swapped out these SPDs? And uh, they're like, I, I can't tell you. I have no idea. Have them come off, take a look. And you have to tell them that the, the fit is done for now because you can't really do a fit on them because their shoes are so worn and their pedals are so worn that if you were to do a fit on them, they would have to do it all over again with new shoes or new pedals. What, what Larry's saying is that this is a flat-footed rider. Sure. Right? So you expect to see a flat foot on the pedal, the knees going to the top tube, blah, blah, blah. And yet they were doing just the opposite yep. because of extensive outside edge pedal and shoe wear, yep. which let them drift off to the outside of the shoe. So instead of a pronator flat foot that became a supinator high arch foot, purely out of equipment, forcing them to do that. That's right. And I, I will say, I think in my experience, not to call out a particular company, but to mention, I feel like Speedplay was really bad about this. The outside edges of their little lollipop pedals would wear out quite, mm. quite a bit. But they were pedals that we used a lot at the center because they had amazing adjustability yeah. Yeah. in what you could do with axles or rotation. Really good control. Exactly. As a bike um, fitter. I am B-Pay for life. Me too. But... I have to replace my pedals pretty frequently. The key with speed play, any pedal, is trying to make the rider on top of them. So I go back to Larry's flat-footed rider. Why would that person wear off the outside edge of his pedal and his shoe and his cleat? Probably because he needed a wider stance. Mm -hmm. And had that pedal been placed out under his foot, that wouldn't have happened. Yep. So stance width is a foreign concept to too many bike fitters. It's like... I don't want to mention this is going to be a pedal change and a cleat change. Oh, my God, this fit's going to become a four-hour fit. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. No. Stance width, when we're talking about the foot and shoe wear, stance width is a, is a whole new frontier that needs to be studied and needs to be addressed. I think that stance width is also a taboo subject because a lot of people associate it with aerodynamics, right? And if the stance width is narrow, then you, must be an, ass, <laughs> <laughs> then you must be an aerodynamic rider. And if the stance width is wide, then you're hanging everything out in the wind. But as we talked about before, I don't even know if it makes a difference in the wind tunnel or it not. Doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> but this is something that we need to be focusing on regardless of any aero benefit because comfort is king. But this goes back to the, the story I gave at the very beginning of this, which was when Dr. Pruitt fit me back in 2011 he put me on much, much wider speed plays. So there's like, I think it's 53 is the, the normal. Standard, yep. 53 standard. millimeters from the crank arm to the middle of the pedals. And I think you put me on 58 or 60. It was really wide. Mm -hmm. And this summer, right before the, the race, I had to replace my pedals and I couldn't find the wider ones anymore. So I had to buy the 53s. And now I can't go two and a half hours without my feet being in absolute pain. And why is that? Because the narrow stance is forcing the pressure to, on the outside of your foot, just like Larry's flat-footed guy probably had a lateral foot pain until his shoes broke down. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and then life felt good. Yeah. Um, but but they, they are available. So Wahoo bought yep. Speedplay, yep, yep. and there was, a, there was a lull in there for a bit. Uh, but the, the long pedals no, are, the long are pedals. yes, they are yeah. back. Yeah, it's great. Let's take a minute to hear from Alex Howes, who has pretty strong opinions about the importance of shoes. Honestly, I'd say this is somebody who just did 2,700-mile Tour Divide. I feel like the feet is probably your most important touch point. The other two, like, if you have a, a mediocre good saddle and you can sit on it well enough with no pain, like, sure, that's not going to get you a whole lot. You know, making an upgrade there. Hand position, you can move that around pretty easily. You know, especially on a drop bar, you're not locked into one position. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in the hoods, but you can move around. But your feet can be like such a limiter. I mean, all literally every bit of power you make goes through those pedals. And as soon as you start having problems with your feet, if you have maybe excessive cue factor in one direction or the other, slop in the pedals, pedals that disengage under power. There's just so many things that can go wrong there. And it's at the world tour, you see it like riders sit around obsessing over their shoes all the time. I mean, the number of times I've looked over in the bus at a rider on day 16 and they're cutting a hole in their shoe. And it's like, dude, you're a professional. You've been, you've spent 20,000 kilometers in that pair of shoes this year already. Like, what the heck are you doing? And they're like, yeah, I can't, I can't pedal with this one more time. Like I'm going to have to amputate something on my foot. Uh, <laughs> good shoes and good pedals and having them in the right place. I, to me, that's, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Tis the season for knee pain. As the summer sunshine inspires us to ramp up our riding miles, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Labs members can follow our knee health pathway featuring our director of sports science medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. And it's important to note that stance width is not necessarily the same on both sides. No, People have anatomical anomalies within their own body. Me personally, I fractured my hip, so one of my uh, femoral necks is a little bit shorter. So yeah, just because you need a a plus five or a plus 10 on one side does not necessarily mean it's both. Right. It could be. And, you know, when it comes to athletic people from age 13, 14 to uh, adulthood, how many people out there have had ankle sprains that they did no restoration of any strength, joint mobility, flexibility? They have no idea what their Achilles length is on either side. Um, So then you have uh, a foot on one side that's weak, one side that abducts out, and the other side that does not. So then there's those continuums where you have to continually look at um, what the foot's doing at different parts of the pedal stroke as well. Larry, please keep going on asymmetries, right? Yeah. So we are not perfect, symmetrical, Far slices down the middle, right equals left. We're but not. That, but that bike is. But it doesn't have to be. That's right. If you make the bike look That's like it. them. So what other kind of asymmetries are our listeners maybe going to encounter, right? Uh, let's just stick with the feet. What kind of asymmetries are they going to encounter? Well, like I was saying, you know, those ankle sprains are the epidemic because we've all had ankle sprains that we never did anything for. We, we didn't go to the dock. We didn't do anything. Even uh, that fifth metatarsal break, you know, someone steps off a curb and they get put in a cast for four to six weeks and, you know, doc doesn't say anything or, and they just don't do anything about it and their foot's weak forever. The body doesn't know to bring them back to a norm. 
and especially if you're riding a bike all the time. And so then uh, they have this uh, foot abduction. They have the arch collapses. They might have a tight Achilles. That's just one, but that's everywhere. So I think it's pretty obvious that if you have one high arch foot, one low arch foot, that's an asymmetry. Yeah. Talk to me about tendo Achilles length differences or functional plantar dorsiflexion, sure. the ability to point the toe, draw the toe back. If they're not the same, what does that do to a cyclist? Sure. So at the top of the pedal stroke is where everything falls apart. That's where we, just like in running, it's the mid-stands. And so what if you have that ankle range of motion difference at the top of the pedal stroke, you're going to see that. You're going to have that um, increased hip flexion on one side, hip hike on one side. You're going to find all kinds of differences with uh, a tight Achilles, um, dysfunctional calf. Uh, dysfunctional peroneal tendons. So what's that look like? If you have a short Achilles on one side, that means that you can't dorsiflex. Every time that we walk, we pull our toes up and we clear the ground. Every time we on a bike at the top of the pedal stroke, we clear our foot just like we do when we walk. And if our ankle doesn't bend as much as one side, our body's going to choose to make that knee on that side go higher. And that means the femur moves up into the pelvis. That means that we're probably going to hike our hip if we have tight hips like Rob. And so uh, if you've had an occurrence on your hips or you just genetically, that's who you are, you don't have that good hip range of motion, you're going to start hiking the hip, you're going to get low back pain, and then things just kind of cascade, then the hand pressure on one side, right? Then you get all, all kinds of neck pain, all kinds of contributing problems down the road. So did both of you go to fit school? Did you specialize? go to fit school? Yeah, right. So one of the quizzes we would do to kind of start the people thinking is that we'd ask the original question was, a rider comes into your to your store or your fit studio with left hand pain. Let's list all the things that can cause left hand pain. Well, of course, first of all, they they all go a carpal tunnel. I mean, they want to go right to the hand, right? But just like you said, that asymmetry in an Achilles length mm-hmm. can cause hand pressure on one side. Absolutely. Only. So that I just want to make people out there so alert to this that the cursory bike fit that is addressing saddle height, maybe saddle foreaft, and reach, right? So that cursory drive-by bike fit is not going to solve your hand pain. If a bike fitter works at a retail setting and the customer comes in and is just drawn to the glove wall, mm-hmm. the glove wall is in a fabulous place to start a discussion about a real bike fit, right? I mean... Looking for more padding in your glove is like looking for more padding in your saddle. You're mm-hmm. looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> well, that, that was the kind of surprise question I was going to end this podcast with, Sorry. which is the fact that sometimes when you have this discomfort or pain somewhere, yeah, the source is elsewhere. And the one I always love to point out, I always say knees are the victim. As I said, if you got hit by a car in your knee, then the problem's in your knee. Otherwise, the knee is just where you're feeling the pain, but the source is, is elsewhere. It's either the foot or the hip. Right. And, yeah, foot that was that was always my. It's either the foot or the hip, and the knees just caught in the middle, and knees the victim. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yes. Are there knee injuries in the perfectly biomechanical ten cyclist? Absolutely. There's no. There's, they can be overused, even if they're perfect biomechanical ten. But if you're not a perfect ten, you can still get overuse injuries on any body part. So I don't want to mislead yep. people to think that uh, just because they have hand, saddle, or foot pain that they're not a biomechanical. Yeah. Ten. They it's, might be. And ways that you can help your partner or, or just a group you're with, you look, you're behind that rider. If you see somebody's uh, shoulder hiked up high, they're loading that shoulder more. And they're just putting more effort into that shoulder. 
And they, you could probably ask them, do you have, you know, if it's their left shoulder's high, they have left neck pain. They have uh, lateral shoulder irritation. They have uh, numbness going on in their left palm. So you can just say, you know, your shoulder's high on one side. What's going on there? So, Larry, I got one forearm that's almost three centimeters shorter than my other one. What am I going to do about that? We're going to compensate. That's a structural limitation. I'm going to compensate with my, my trapezius and neck pain on my long side. <laughs> what am I going to do to my bike? Well, first, it uh, depends on what you need, right? So you're going to depend on what... Uh, it's short, man. Yeah. What did you say was the Good difference? Lord, look at you. Yeah, Three centimeter difference. difference where? Forearm. Forearm. Dude, I knew you were messed up. I didn't realize you were I got so bad. many bad parts. How'd you, how did that happen? <laughs> Is that from birth? Uh, first break was football. Second break was wrestling. Third one was mountain biking. One centimeter each time. <laughs> ah. Anyway, well. so my point is, so I'm not the only person out there with this. No, absolutely. So do brake hoods have to be perfectly symmetrical? No, they do not. Thank you. You know, that's where you're going to make up the difference, right? That's where you're going to try to make up that difference. Uh, and with cyclists all the time, we see fractured wrists. And there's, a, I mean, that's the big thing that needs to be tested all the time is like, just show me what your range of motion looks like. Can you pronate? Can you supinate? And can you uh, do wrist extension? If you can't, if you're locked, if you can't do it, then you got to compensate. It's a critical part of level of dandy and, and physical therapist when it comes to like determining whether or not we remediate or we compensate. And that structural limitation, sometimes you just can't get away from it. You're going to have to compensate. We've been talking a lot about some very specific solutions to problems that people have, but it's brought up a question in my mind. And that is... When you're working with a bike fitter, or even maybe when you're trying to make changes for yourself, which nobody should do, they should always see a professional bike fitter, is the best solution always immediately more comfortable? Or let's pretend that rider needs more arch support. Mm. More arch support improves their knee tracking. It improves how their hips are sitting on the saddle. Is that arch support always going to be more comfortable initially or is comfort sometimes a longer term solution and it might not be more comfortable tomorrow, but it will be next month? Well, the thing that Andy helped me understand um, when I just watched him do bike fits, when I first started doing bike fits uh, 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to just like, you know, train with the best. And I, and the thing that Andy would do was understand the length of time that we need to look at, right? So he'd make a change and he would say, you know, this is a temporary fix. Or down the road, a few weeks from now, you might feel this. I don't want to make tell you that this is going to happen, but because you do this type of writing, you are going to possibly feel this. And I want you to let me know. So it does take that experience as you do bike fitting and as you ride, you have to ride and understand what people's needs are and what, under, what you understand about people. If they tell you certain things, it could be a clue in the very beginning of their subjective information when they're telling about what they do. And so Andy did an amazing job just understanding the human being that's riding that bike. And if you understand what their needs are, and the more that if you're that person getting a bike fit, the more you tell that bike fitter, the more they're going to be able to understand you. And it's not a one and done. So we've talked a lot about the importance of the fit, the importance of the position, that we are asymmetrical. And we've kind of gone back and forth between the feet and the hands. But So I'm actually going to bring us back to somewhere a little more mundane about let's actually get local. Are there things to think about with shoes, pedals, handlebars, handlebar tape, gloves that are going to improve comfort or make it worse? Because these are things that people can do themselves. 
I think we've made a very solid case. Go and get that fit. You need that fit. You need to understand your asymmetries. You need to fix these or you are going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. But we, we just talked about the chamois. What are some other things to know about gloves, handlebar tape, handlebars, shoes, pedals, just things you've learned that don't do this. This is uncomfortable. Do this. I have one test that I do with lots of my bike fits when it comes to shoes. Um, and it's just a simple, take an 8 by 11 white piece of paper and you just trace the foot. And I'll say, take that into a bike shop, right? Measure it. Measure that with uh, the width from your inner forefoot to the outer widest part. And just, that's not where you stop, but that's where you begin. That's where you just at least know that you're in the ballpark when it comes to foot width. And that's just, again, one of these epidemic problems when it comes to shoes. People in too narrow shoes, I think being in a climbing community, things get a little confusing as well. But just go into a shop and just know what your width of your foot is in standing position. Much of my reputation is based on the invention of the body geometry shoe, where I was attempting to make a biomechanically correct shoe mm -hmm. for the masses, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that nine of 10 people have some degree of forefoot angulation called forefoot varus. That's why we angled the forefoot of that shoe. But I wanted to be more aggressive with it, but we, we quickly learned in trial that, you know, 1.5 millimeters was about what was tolerable by anybody. And then we gave the adjustability to go up or down arch. We had, you know, multiple choices and arch height, but most cycling shoes are an empty box mm. that needs to be customized for the rider. So I really don't care anymore what brand people have as long as inside that shoe looks like them, mm -hmm. right? So if you go buy brand X, it's going to need to be customized, hopefully. If you do buy a specialized, it too has to be customized. It's just a bit more applicable, adjustable, and by its nature. But cycling shoes are an empty box primarily that need attention. Lots of attention. Yeah. <laughs> I want to actually say something that combines both of you in, into one for footwear, and that is proper shoe sizing is hugely important. <laughs> and I think that oftentimes people will uh, size their shoes like ballet slippers, right? That your toe is like touching the end of that shoe. It's the tightest your foot can possibly be in there. Guess what? After an hour or less, your foot is swelling, especially in hot weather. And that shoe, it never fit you to begin with, but it definitely doesn't fit you now. But the thing I want to tie to you, Andy, is this. If you buy a pair of shoes and you know that you're going to need a custom insole, either one that's made for you or a, a very good off-the-shelf insole, you might need to add some various wedges in there. You have to be bringing that along with you when you go shoe shopping because guess what? You start stuffing that stuff into a shoe, that toe box doesn't fit like it did when there was nothing in that shoe anymore. And, and here's the thing. I'm in the industry and I've fallen victim to this. So it's really important to point this out to people. If you know you need additional wedging, make sure that you're putting that in the shoe when you're trying it on. Make sure that you're leaving yourself an appropriate amount of, of toe you know, room uh, and that the toe box has enough volume. That's where I see the biggest issues. Well, I mean, that's that. it just reminds me of old old stories, but but you're right on the money. I mean, uh, once you start to customize that shoe, you buy your shoe online, and then you go to the store with for your fit, and they start 
adding arch support and wedges and pretty soon that shoe didn't work for you anymore. Yeah. But when I was a young rider, which was a long time ago, I mean, we I raced in wool shorts and true leather chamois mm -hmm. that had to be creamed and worked every day to be soft. We nailed our cleats to the bottom of our wooden sole shoes. And when a shoe was new, we would soak them in warm water overnight. Mm -hmm. And then we would put them on and go for a ride the next day and let them dry around our feet. You suddenly had a custom upper. Yep. Is that is that leather shoe dried around our foot? No socks, just let them dry around our foot. And and but they were real leather, so they were expandable, right? They would stretch. The shoes now are synthetic, mm -hmm. and they are meant not to stretch, right? And to be more durable. So the world has changed. Cleat position is no longer nailed on; it's quite adjustable. It's a fixed toe box height and width and length. So uh, your your points are really well taken, Rob. And something to keep in mind too: cleat position. And the adjustability therein is different from brand to brand. Some drill their holes further forward, some further back. So if you're changing brands especially, make sure that you're able to take these fit coordinates and transfer them between your different accessories. Yeah. I mean, one of my greatest nightmares, and I'm sure Larry has encountered this in his now private practice, is that the guy who comes in who bought his bike online... Mm -hmm. He wanted to bring everything new so they could all get adjusted at this really expensive fit. He's traveled a long way. And he's got his bike he bought online. He hadn't ridden yet. He's got his brand-new shoes in the box, brand-new kit, and off we go. How many times have you told that customer or that patient, I am so sorry. I hope you have your receipt. This bike <laughs> does not fit you, oh, and I cannot day. make it fit you. It's not a good day, right? <laughs> I have told that story of I went down to a race called Hotter in Hell in Texas. And the airline lost my bike. Mm. I should say they lost it. Their exact wording was they chose not to put it on the plane. Never found? Oh, no, I got it later. <laughs> but I didn't get in time for the race. So I did the race on a borrowed bike in brand new shoes, brand new everything. Made the winning breakaway. It was three of us. I could see they were hurting. I went, I have this race won. And then 15 minutes later, I was on the side of the road, ripping my shoes off, screaming. Yeah. My feet had cramped so badly. It that will is, catch up to you, right? It you, does and, catch up. And quickly. the tolerance zone was a, was obliterated for you, and you got out of your comfort zone, and your body said, that's it. Yeah. And this is why my shoes, whenever I fly now to races, always go on my, my carry-on. But to Rob's point, I mean, I have my recent issue with my spindle length aside, I have always really cared about if your feet are uncomfortable, you just can't ride. You just can't put out the power. And to Rob's point, I get custom inserts. There's a, a woman down in Louisville who does a great job. I have her redo them every couple of years because your feet change. They do. And you'll get a, a kick out of this. I'm still on 2013, I think, specialized shoes but it's not the same pair of shoes. They just fit me so well. When they discontinued them, I went and tried the newer model, didn't like them as much, so I ordered three pair of that particular model because they just really worked reasoning. for me. And I'm slowly, I'm very, I'm on my last set. Dang, you got to move on. I'm going to have to move on at some point. I'm not looking forward to finding what are the next shoes that, that fit as well. But... Yeah, these details make a huge difference. I mean, Rob, you you work for Prozumi as primarily a shoe company. Uh, not primarily, it was an apparel company who became a shoe company. And I I consulted for Specialized, which was a bike company that became a shoe company. And we'd be going along and, you know, 
we need to innovate. We need to we need to really take these shoes to the next level. We're gonna we're gonna design a new last. And I would just cringe. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. We're selling hundreds of thousands of pairs of happy people around the world, and you want now want to change the shape of the thing that the shoes are made to? Yeah, but they do it. I'm, I mean, I'm speechless. I don't even <laughs> I, you don't even know what to say. Yeah. It, it is it it's hard on the side of the manufacturer, right? And sometimes decisions are made. Fortunately, I worked in innovation, so I got to create some cool solutions that were then used in product. But no, Andy, you're, you're entirely right. We see changes like this occur for the sake of something being new. And new isn't necessarily better. At the same time, I will say, don't be afraid of new things because some great innovation has, has occurred that I do believe uh, impacts function, comfort, performance, so on and so forth. But yeah. There's one thing we didn't discuss about pedal systems, and that's free play. Let's hear Glenn Swan's thoughts on the topic. Most pedal systems work perfectly well. I can't say that there's one that stands head and shoulders above all of the others. I have personally been very happy with the speed plays where I can dial in as much free play as I like or as little. I was always aware of the fact that if you're lifting free weights, it's a lot different from uh, lifting a similar weight on a Nautilus machine or any other fixed travel machine because not only do you have to apply the force to move it, but you also have to maintain control and balance of it. So uh, free play in a pedal system is not totally a good thing because as you are pedaling, you have to maintain the direction of force. Whereas if you have less free play, you are guided more around the pedaling circle. There's less movement of your ankles, your knees, your joints. So more free play is not necessarily more better. (laughs) It's just a little bit less efficient because instead of just focusing on power and having even some of your misguided power be uh, properly restrained or guided into the motion of pedaling, you're having to control it yourself. That might not be quite as clear as we would like, but uh, I think you get the idea. So we've been kind of dodging this question, so I'm just going to ask it one more time. Gloves, handlebars, handlebar tape. Here's what I'll say. I think that, and I was really surprised when when Larry started talking because he wasn't wrong. Hey, now. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, it's difficult to have universal recommendations. We can't say this will always improve comfort. Even Andy, as you said, through research that you had done and then the various wedging, right? Mm-hmm. The inside of your forefoot being a little higher than the outside of your foot. That works for most people, but it doesn't work for everyone, right? So universal recommendations are really hard to make. What I will say is that universally, if you are experiencing discomfort, the universal recommendation is you shouldn't just tolerate it. You should go through the process of figuring out why is that discomfort. And I think more often than not, the things that we do in the name of comfort are ultimately masking problems. Mm -hmm. Why do you need that thicker handlebar tape? Do you have way too much pressure on your hands? That's a fit problem, not a handlebar tape problem. Just thinking of... uh, 
junior racers uh, and some U23 racers on road bikes, you know, a lot of times coaches will want the hoods of the bars to be up a little bit higher so that they can get down in their drops and they can be comfortable on that slanted portion of the drops. And that's their insistence. But they sacrifice, you know, 70% of their race just to, so that they can sprint and feel comfortable. There's these choices, these, these norms that these people need. And I understand it, right? It's important. But you have to find somebody that knows what they're doing uh, instead of just saying, you know, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. You have to find the balance. You have to have somebody asking the question about how long are you riding in those drops? Is it that important? Because when those hoods are rotated back and your bars are dropped down, uh, I don't know if that's doing so much for your palm of your hand or, you know, the orientation of your saddle. Maybe the saddle is too nose down. So there's all these different uh, variables. I love it because it's a big, huge puzzle and problem that well, I there's can no solve. free lunch. If you change the handlebar orientation, you've changed saddle pressure. You have. There's, and and that it. also changes brake hood position, which changes your ability to get to the brakes. That's it. There is no free lunch. It's all all connected. I want to tell two stories, both on Tom Boonin, and the, these are kind of out there, so I'm not breaking some... I'm sure he signed his life away in some contract. <laughs> so we can tell this <laughs> story. So. so Tom had had a pretty, a pretty bad season. He comes to us in fall camp with this goal of winning Perry Roubaix for the fifth time, or the fourth time the next the next spring. And he basically said, Andy, I'm, I'm a blank sheet of paper. Do with me what you want. And so we're doing my, do my normal exam. I do, the, the pressure of that is huge, by right. the way, mm -hmm. right? So and I've got my team of guys, and we're all scouring over this thing. And I said, Tom, why are you on 46-centimeter handlebars? He immediately measured closer to a 43, maybe. He said, my junior coach put me on these, told me I would grow into them. So we actually went to uh, 44s, changed his aerodynamic drag significantly, right? And he was way more comfortable. He said, I'm really tempted to go to 42s. He was, that's, if, you, if you see Tom Boone. good. <laughs> Tom, Tom, yeah, if, if a little is good, more would be better, right? So we talked him out of it. We went to the 44s, and it tr saved his aerodynamics significantly. So anyway, I, I think that bar choice is, is a, there is a scientific start to the place, but shape of that bar, uh, material, alloy is so rigid mm. versus carbon. So if you go to Europe and you rent a bike and you've been used to riding carbon bars and suddenly you're riding aluminum bars, you're going, wow, this bike's uncomfortable. Yep. You, but you've duplicated your fit. It's the material in the bar, yeah. just like the material in the saddle rails. All these things add up, right? No, that's a great point. Absorption, uh, access to your brakes, um, the form of your hand. I, I had uh, a landscaping episode when, when I was in grad school where I was moving block with my, uh, these landscaping blocks with my right hand for a day. The next day I woke up and I had a, a numb palm. I had carpal tunnel. And, uh, but it was quick. You know, I went to a OT. I worked at a clinic at the time. And, and within three weeks, I didn't have carpal tunnel anymore. But... The rest of my life, if there's a hand that acts up, it's my right hand because that tunnel is just a little smaller. So you have to be knowledgeable of all these different things. And, you know, sometimes it's a just maybe we'd get a different set of hoods. You know, it's just these hoods aren't working for you. I think there is one other aspect or area of comfort that we haven't addressed. And it's not a contact area, but anybody who deals with this pain will tell you that this can end a ride. Neck and back. 
What are your thoughts there? Well, they're both related to contact areas. Yes, they are. So, I mean, Andy knows this. You know, when you, uh, when you have that uh, backward rotation of your pelvis, you're on an improper saddle, too narrow saddle, or you're falling off the back of the saddle, you're going to create flexion of your lumbar spine, flexion of your thoracic spine, and you're just setting your, sp- your cervical spine up for failure. And then your thoracic spine is rigid. As we get older, it just gets more rigid because it just doesn't move. And this is something that I tackle, you know, anybody that's over 30, 35, this is something I tackle every single time, which is forward rounded shoulders. It's just like a leather strap across your back. It just holds you down. And then your neck has to work against that the entire ride. And so you got to figure it out. You got to figure out getting them stable on their saddle. You got to figure out how they can best be on their um, saddle and not put their cervical spine at, at risk, too low front end. It's a huge comfort problem. So I'm going to set you up. I'm going to tee you up, Larry. So Do it. I think both of those, assuming the bike fit is as good as you can get it, I think both the low back pain and the neck pain are really off the bike things to address, right? I mean, so the, we all sit at our computers all day long. All we drive. Day. We all, we're out, everything's out here in front of us. So, I mean, the door stretch, opening up that front of your chest, there's so many things. So I teed you up there, Mr. Physical Therapist. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, we are in a state of forward flexion all the time and, and tight. I call it anterior, but the front musculature of our chest is the key to this, right? If we, if we have a tight chest, then you have, uh, you're going to probably resist uh, any type of therapy that um, purports uh, straightening out your spine. Um, but it all does start with Andes. It all starts with the saddle. What's your saying again? Center of the fit universe. Center of the fit universe. I agree. If your saddle's not in the right position and if you're uh, too long a reach or if you have a nose up position or two nose down position, same thing, you're going to start altering the way that you hold your shoulders and, and hold your, uh, your cervical spine. Your cervical spine has to have room in order to operate, right? It just does. And as we get older, we have less and less margin with our necks. How do you address, as a physical therapist, the fact that you know it's going to be a multi-step process? Listeners are going to want to know this because we've just caused everybody to have an itch. Now they're going to want to scratch it. And and how how do you, as a physical therapist in private practice, deal with that multiple step-by-step fit process? Right. So, you know, getting a bike fit's expensive. And it's hard to—I don't want people to ever look at a bike fit as something that's prohibitory for them to, to be on a bike. So you see a situation like that, you got to work with them. You got to try to figure out how you can make, uh, make it affordable, make them maybe even say, let's end the bike fit a little bit early and let's have you come back and uh, do some follow-ups so we get range of motion. As a physical therapist, I, yes, I'm going to sit there and say, can I get more range of motion of your neck? I can. Can I get your thoracic spine in more extension and out of kyphosis? Absolutely. But it's going to take some time and you have to give realistic benchmarks. How long is it going to take? If you can give them, and experience leads to this right as well, is that you have to be honest with your plan and make sure that they know exactly what is expected of them to make the difference because it has to do with them a lot. So it might go from a cash pay bike fit Mm -hmm. to an insurance covered PT program. Yeah, your referral base is another thing. And, and that's it. You're trying to get them, you know, I believe in my life is my life. It's not just a bike ride, yep. right? So I want to have good neck range of motion when I'm belaying somebody at a, at a, at a rock climbing gym. And if yep. I can't have cervical extension, I'm not going to be able to do it. Or I'm gonna, not going to be able to sit at my desk and, and not have neck pain. So good referral system, good physical therapists, good options for treatment, good techniques. 
So I got to bring up one last thing, but we didn't even talk about the bike itself. And I think that could be a whole conversation in and of itself. But the one statement I'm going to make when people talk about my bike is really stiff or my bike is really flexy, you can't feel the frame. What you generally feel are the fork and the wheels. So those can be important components. So the the last recommendation I'm personally going to give, and like I said, there's a whole bunch more we can talk about with the bike, is if you care about comfort, don't look online for the wheels that everybody says are really speedy and just order them and go, these are going to make me really fast because you might not like how they feel. I have a set of wheels that are really aerodynamic. I never race on them because I can't corner them. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter. So make sure when you're getting your wheels for your bike, you got to try them. You got to go to the shop, put them on your bike, see how they feel. Well, one of the newer trends, which is great, is less tire pressure right now. Mm-hmm. And so again, back to my leather shoes and wool shorts and leather chamois, we believed in 120 PSI. Oh, well, I know and guys doing 160. What? Which, uh, for, what? Time tra- for time trials. Yes. We actually would inflate our, our time trial uh, tires with helium to 150 pounds. Helium, as if, as if it was going to make us lighter, right? They I mean, were tubulars. You didn't have to worry about them coming off of the... Good Lord. And it, but, but you talk about rigid. Holy crap. Yeah. So the good news is now we've really proved that less tire pressure keeping the tire in contact with the with the ground, whether it be gravel, mountain, or, or pavement, is actually faster and, wow, more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's probably the only universal recommendation we can make. Yeah. Just lower that tire pressure. Yeah. You'll be more comfortable. I'm riding 80 pounds on my, my road bike, and I used to ride 120. I don't even... Same tires. I hate higher pressure so much, I don't even ride road bikes anymore. Take that. <laughs> I refuse to let anything... Take, take away my love of riding my road bike. Good. I'll suck the fun out of it for you. <laughs> you know, my biggest disappointment of all this is when I was a Cat 5, the first bike race I ever won, I discovered after the race that my tires were at like 70 PSI. And I was like, I'm so strong. I could win the race at that tire pressure. Now I look back, I'm like, actually, that helped me. Contributed. <laughs> it actually contributed. Before we go into our take-homes, let's hear the final thoughts from Glenn. For me, it just keeps coming back to stability and being able to not have to use muscles to hold yourself in position. If you're holding yourself up with your hands, uh, you tend to get tension in your neck and shoulders, which is more likely to cause numb hands than any kind of padding can protect. You know, the companies would like you to believe that you need thick padded gloves to prevent your hands from going numb. But my experience has been that numb hands tend to be more a function of tension in your neck and shoulders that's a result of poor bike fit than it is directly pressure on your hands or ulnar nerve. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you can have the best saddle and the best handlebars in the world. But if you're in a bad position and you're sliding down the nose of your saddle and you're using all your arm strength to, to keep yourself on the bike, that saddle and, and, and handlebars don't matter. You're going to be very uncomfortable. Exactly. So do you guys know where we go from here? We got our one-minute take-homes, and there's a lot to cover here, so I don't know where everybody's going to go, but let's go around the room. What is the big lesson that you hope our listeners take from this with when we're talking about comfort on the bike? And, and Dr. Pruitt, let's start with you. I think I'd be repeating something I've said multiple times today already. Fit is crucial. The saddle is the center of the fit universe. 
And I think that performance and comfort go hand in hand. They do not have to be either or, and you can't fit yourself. I would say uh, advocate for yourself, meaning that, so as a bike fitter, I, uh, it's my job to dig as much out of your brain as possible about who you are as an individual off the bike and on the bike. But if you advocate for yourself with even the retail salesman in the bike shop, just let them know this is what I want and this is what I want for an outcome. This is precisely what I want for an outcome. I want to ride my bike and I don't want to have um, stress spots on my on my ride. And then continue to make an effort to find the experts that you can trust and always go back to. Yeah, for me, it's that comfort is not a bad thing. And we shouldn't look at it as a negative connotation, but that also oftentimes the things that we do for comfort are probably just masking problems that we have. And so you need to begin the process to figure out why does that foot hurt? Why does your butt hurt? Why does your hand hurt or your neck hurt? And it probably means that you're going to need help in doing that. Andy says you can't fit yourself. And here's the thing. I have watched Andy be fit by other people. I've never seen Andy fit himself. Premier bike fitter in the world asks other people to do it for him. So you got to take that advice. Um, But yeah, chase it down. Figure out why you're not comfortable. Because finding that problem will ultimately make you faster. Well, going last, I was really stressed about what my take home was going to be because I knew what I wanted to say. I'm like, there's no way that everybody's going to leave this one for me, but you guys did. So I appreciate it. A gift. (laughs) And my take home is it is complicated. So we had in the outline here, let's talk about comfort at the saddle. Then let's talk about comfort at the feet. And then let's talk about comfort at the hands. And we couldn't really do it because as you're talking about what's going on at the feet, you go, and that's going to make your butt uncomfortable. or That's going to make your hands uncomfortable. It all interrelates. So I think a really important message is your hands are hurting. It's not a simple solution of go to the store, find a better set of gloves, and you're going to be fine. The problem could be coming from a completely different place. So you can't just localize and solve it one place. You have to solve it everywhere. Look at what the bigger thing is that's going on. So guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. been great. Always fun to be here. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Dr. Andy Pruitt, Larry Meyer, Glenn Swan, Alex Howes, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.